Hi everyone, welcome to a new talk of Europe after coronavirus, a series of podcasts promoted by OpenEU Debate, a Jean Monnet sponsored network. My name is Carlos Carnicero Ravallen, I'm a journalist here in Brussels, and today we'll be talking about how the crisis is impacting migration policies around Europe. Uh, we're very lucky because we have three top experts on this matter joining us today. And today's guest editor is Laura Batalla, Hello Europe Migration Policy Representative at ASOCA. Thanks for joining us, Laura, and for uh, helping us prepare today's talk. Thank you, Carlos. My pleasure. Okay, thank you. Also joining us here today is Abdullahi Fall, demographer and social entrepreneur. Uh, thank you, Abdullahi. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Uh, last but not least, Ruth Ferrero Turion, political science professor. Welcome, Ruth. Hello, very nice to stay here. All right, so let's get started. Uh, the broad question we will be discussing today is whether COVID-19 can be an opportunity to change public policies and narratives of migration in the EU. As you know, migration and more specifically border control was one of the key concerns of European institutions before this crazy pandemic started. Uh, just when the pandemic was starting to hit, the attention of European public opinion was turned to the deadly clashes between Greek border agents and refugees trying to enter from Greece. I'm sure you all remember the polemic words of von der Leyen referring to uh, Greece being the shield of Europe, and uh, we'll get into that. So interestingly, these days, uh, European states are proceeding to extraordinary regularization processes and negative coverage of migration is now much less frequent. So what is going on? Um, let's start by having a look at how COVID-19 is affecting migrant communities in Europe. Uh, so Laura, why don't you tell us a bit how is uh, the pandemic affecting migrant communities? Yes, we, we have been actually exploring how this pandemic has been impacting uh, refugees and migrants in Europe. We started an exercise when the pandemic went global in, in March, and we brought together our community of what we call Hellopreneurs, which uh, who are the social entrepreneurs working in the field of migration and integration. We brought them together to discuss how were they coping with their respective organizations in providing responses and solutions to, to the situation. And we identified different areas uh, where uh, the pandemic is impacting uh, refugees and migrants. None of them are new, to be honest. I think COVID is only highlighting uh, structural problems that already existed in the way that some migration policies are being developed. But we looked into different areas, um, like disinformation narratives that you mentioned, but also what, how is the pandemic impacting those refugees who are hosted in uh, massive refugee camps. And we, we all uh, know the situation in some of the Greek islands at the moment. We also looked at how um, uh, refugees and migrants can continue their integration process in times where uh, we are being asked to keep a social distance uh, or a physical distance from each other. We also looked at how after this uh, pandemic fades away, 
how this will uh, turn into uh, the recovery of uh, for the European Union and other communities and what's the role that migrants and refugees can play in this uh, recovery to make it inclusive, how to empower migrant leaders who are being at the forefront of providing solidarity responses, uh, helping uh, other uh, citizens and communities in their respective countries to cope with the effects of the, of the pandemic. Um, so we have been providing solutions in all, these, in all these fields that we have brought to the attention of uh, different policymakers at the EU, but also at the national level. And these solutions are now uh, the basis for, for the work that we are doing in terms of trying to to support uh, refugees and migrants in different fields uh, at the uh, psychosocial uh, level, but also how to continue providing them education. We have uh, social entrepreneurs that have turned their model completely online to continue providing language learning for them or how to build into their self-development agency uh, so that they we can prepare them better uh, for the eventual return to their host uh, societies. So these are some of the, the things that we are working on. But as I said at the beginning, this is uh, nothing new. I mean, this is, I think this pandemic is a stress test for not only migration policies at the European level, but many other uh, economic uh, as well as uh, social policies that were in place before. So we are in front of a big opportunity now to reframe and rethink the way uh, these policies have been designed and implemented. Thank you, Laura. Uh, yeah, it may, may not be new, but definitely it's so challenging what, what you are doing these days uh, in these difficult conditions. Abdullah, what is your take on, on how do you see uh, COVID-19 affecting migrant communities these days? Thank you. I, I think that if you try to make analysis of how this pandemic is affecting migrant and refugee communities around Europe, uh, I think it, can, it may be a little bit pretentious to try to give a novel response that may apply to all communities in Europe, uh, due especially to, let's say, political and regulatory uh, uh, realities that are specific to every country. But I think that what we can really, what we see clearly is that there is a kind of clear dichotomy between those countries that are in the southern part of Europe that have been especially affected by the pandemic, like Spain, like Italy, like maybe France a little bit, uh, compared with other countries which are in the northern part that maybe that have not hit so so hard by the by, by the situation. And we have the situation that those countries that have been especially hit by the pandemic are the most that have been suffering from the let's like, say. Um, the, the the important flows of migrant arrival in Europe. So that is a kind of complementary situation of, of, of difficulties that is really making it quite complicated for migrants to make it in these countries. Uh, I think that what makes this pandemic much more complicated in terms of economic aspect is that uh, in many European countries, we have had not completely recovered from the last economic crisis. And we can see that many migrants are still uh, expelled from the labor market uh, as a consequence of the last uh, economic crisis. And I think this situation will make it much more complicated for them to, 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 let, yeah, to make it uh, uh, as a consequence of this pandemic uh, uh, situation. What 
it is very specific also to the migrant in relation to how they can be resilient to this this pandemic is that uh, um, their legal status because uh, uh, as we will see a kind of competitiveness in the labor market for many people, not only migrants, those migrants that are not entitled with the job permit will have it much more harder to make it in this situation. And uh, yeah. I think that this may be some, some situation that uh, we can take into account when we try to analyze the situation of migrants in European countries. But I think that countries uh, such as Spain and Italy will, uh, will be seen much more affected by the pandemic than other countries, maybe that case Scandinavian countries or, or Germany or other countries. Thank you, Abdullah. In that, in, indeed, that's a dangerous cocktail, having the countries that normally receive the biggest number of migrants are the countries that are most badly affected by this crisis. So that's definitely um, a, a big challenge here. Uh, Ruth, what is your initial, your initial reaction to, to what we are discussing and, and COVID-19 and how it is affecting the, the migrants? Okay, I, I'm going to be very optimistic about it. <laughs> I know this is not very common when we're talking about this topic, but I think the, the the COVID-19 could be an opportunity and it's been an opportunity to be civilized uh, migrants in our societies and and have the perception that they are a structural part of our societies in, in itself. So um, I think um, uh, this this pandemia is, is a, it's a, a force in the societies to look at the migrants as a, a very, very um, a part of their societies, and they have to count on them. So uh, the societies are realizing that uh, they that they need this migration. They they need migrants to to carry on with their with their economic models and with their productive models. On the other hand, uh, the pessimistic um, way of look at it is it would be like this this. Uh, um, perception and this visibilization of migrants are all also just linked to labor market uh, um, issues. Uh, so we are seeing that we need migrants in in our Western societies to to carry on with some of our economic models. But on the other hand, we are not looking at their um, human rights or, if you want, uh, political rights, uh, uh, labor rights, etc. And since um, we are, um, have, we have to, to to have a look of of uh, about this uh, sanitary, this health crisis, uh, we have to take into account that those migrants, which are in, in administrative position and as irregular, uh, uh, are part of the society, and we have to take care of them as well. So it's not just a matter of uh, economic uh, economic uh, issue. It's also a, a health and and the, our own safety in in terms of of, of healthcare. Thank you, thank you, uh, Ruth. Uh, I want to ask you uh, about something that's been uh, detected, and it's about the risk of stigmatization. Uh, there's been talks about the Chinese virus. Uh, so obviously this is uh, this is a, a big concern. I was reading recently about the the COVID-19 in in Sweden, and in Sweden migrants are on average much more affected by the virus than than others. So I'm wondering whether there's a risk of 
of stigma or further stigma on, on migrant communities due to COVID-19. Laura, what's your, what's your take on that? Yes, I think stigmatization has always uh, been present and now we, we risk to, to see an increase of these negative uh, narratives and discourses against migrants and refugees uh, when economies will begin to gradually open up. I think the potential for scapegoating is, uh, is there, so we have to, um, we have to include them uh, as part of, of the, res the economic response to, to the crisis as much as we can. It's what uh, Ruth was saying as well. I think we, we have now a positive uh, narrative coming up in the sense that we are realizing how important migrants are in our respective societies. So we have to make this uh, a priority in our in the discourse that uh, the media and politicians have. Uh, we have been we have seen in different conversations uh, with the uh, Eva Johansson, the commissioner on uh, home affairs, that she is using herself this uh, very positive um, narrative. Uh, mostly because she's Swedish herself and uh, she comes from a very multicultural uh, society. So we see a window now of opportunity on, on, how, to, uh, on how to amplify this uh, positive discourse around migrants and refugees. It's all about putting them at the center and acknowledging uh, all, the, uh, all the efforts that they have been doing in, in healthcare, in the emergency services, providing food and other essential services now uh, at the, uh, in, in providing this economic response. And something that some of our fellows have been working very intensely, uh, we have two organizations in Spain called Por Causa and Maldita that are both working on narratives and uh, combating misinformation around uh, refugees and migrants. I think we have to turn now from this uh, idea that migrants are in our society to, to steal jobs from the locals or access free health treatments or that they are mainly involved in criminal activities uh, to actually provide this more positive um, discourse uh, uh, around them. We have seen now that this is not, not the case. And while a few years ago, when there was this massive influx of refugees coming uh, from, uh, from Syria, they were portrayed mainly as victims. Now I think we have this opportunity to, uh, to be more um, open to, to have them part of our society and, and start and stop devising this, uh, this line of division between us versus them and make them more part of the society. So now that different governments are busy dealing with the responses towards COVID, I think some measures taken by some member states are very welcome. Uh, and this needs to be continued and replicated in other countries and take, make the most of this momentum in where the media and the politicians are not focusing much on, on this uh, phenomenon to, to turn it into a positive narrative. I think that what uh, Laura has pointed out is quite very important, but I think we, it would be interesting to make a kind of distinction between the situation we're living now while the pandemic is going on and the consequences of the pandemic, let's say, within uh, three, four, or six months. Because uh, the, the bad narrative on migration may come out from the consequences of the pandemic, because we will be in a situation of economic downturn. Here in Spain, Nissan uh, uh, closed its plant, and uh, something like 3,000 people lost their job. And in the scenario of uh, post-pandemic, we'll see that 
there will be a hard competition for jobs. And as a consequence of this, that many people will be losing their jobs, there will be also a competition for social subsidies. And that will be a big problem that will try to create a clima of uh, yes, uh, yeah, of, of crispation that may some polit political party may recuperate to create this narrative on migration. And I think that will be the bad situation we'll have to handle. It's not about the behavior of the citizens, but what is the political uh, recuperation that we made on this just to try to create a bad narrative on migration. And that is, I think, it's quite concerning uh, in on how we will have to handle this situation in the in the next future. But anyway, coming back to what we pointed out about uh, how the pandemic will be affecting the migrant communities in Europe, I think that we, we should also take into account, account the transnational effect of the pandemic on the migrants' life and their families in their, uh, in their home countries. Because I think this is important. It's not about limiting the appreciation and the analysis in Europe, but about what is happening this migrant with this country, because we know, for example, in Senegal, when I am from, uh, that 12% uh, of the GDP is depend on remittances. I think we see a clear let's say, effect of the pandemic on the economy, on the, um, uh, the, 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 um, yes, the sending countries. And I think that we should also take into, into account this kind of analysis in appreciating the global phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, Ruth, I think we need a bit of your optimism after hearing uh, Abdullah's uh, very accurate and precise uh, concerns about uh, about the current situation. What is what is your reaction? I think answering the question of uh, the risk of stigmatization, um, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we detected uh, this uh, this kind of stigmatization by some political leaders and also. If you have a look in, in here in Spain, uh, how you know Ursera was treated, which uh, is, the, is the neighborhood in which the Chinese community is living, there almost all all shoppings uh, were closed um, at the beginning of this year. Um, also, with the New Year's uh, party, uh, the Chinese New Year, New Year's party, it was it was canceled. Everything was uh, like closed up, closed down. Um, uh, but uh, I think. Um, this uh, this uh, stigmatization that you mentioned uh, it's it's not longer focuses on one specific community um the problem is here again that we have to take into account that the, this these communities these diasporas if you want uh, are part of our societies and we have to deal with them as a structural issue, as Laura mentioned at the beginning of uh, her uh, uh, talk. And the thing is that we, we have the chance now to build up an, a new narrative that includes um, these, uh, these people into our societies, uh, in, in, into our policies. We have to, to take into account that the, this pandemic had to um, has an impact also on on uh, on the public administration and the migration public policies that have been speeding up uh, to taking measures uh, towards them, as we will talk later. Um, but also, um, we have to take into account that um, these communities uh, will will remain with us. And besides, uh, Abdullah just mentioned that uh, there is a problem. Uh, there are different phases and different um, axes that we have to deal with uh, the impact on the countries of origin because of the remittances, which is 
it's correct what he, they, he mentioned. I also have this hope in a way that uh, we have the time because it's not going to be a, a matter of six months, but uh, probably two years since we have the vacuum for, for, for this virus. Uh, that we, we can build with uh, very uh, hard work, I should say, because they, the political forces are not on our side. But uh, we had the chance to build up these new narratives, uh, including uh, these, these issues. It's going to be difficult because uh, all the migration public policies have been focused on, on, on control and security. But uh, now we can, we can take the chance to, 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 to change that. Thank you, Ruth. I think that's what we're trying to do here today is to contribute to change that narrative on migration and, and do our, our little little part on that. Thanks. So moving on, let's now have a look at the role that local and regional governments have in a European strategy to accommodate refugees. This is a, a crucial topic. So Abdullah, how do you see this this aspect? I, I always have uh, yeah considered that the most important important challenge when it comes to talk about the integration of of migrants and refugees uh, is at local level, the level of the communities and the level of the municipalities. It is important that uh, yeah if we talk about the refugees and uh, yeah the dispatching the quotas and everything the policies and uh, yeah, the regulatory framework can be frameworks can be defined at uh, supranational and national level, but I think that the job really should be done at local level. And in this uh, point, I think the municipalities have an important role to play. But what is normally the problem that are met at the local level when it comes to face this problem is the lack of resources, and this is a big problem because most of the time, if we try to analyze the situation in our municipalities uh, and try to see what is the real problem for the integration of newcomers is that most of the time this kind of uh, negative narrative and discrimination we're talking about comes really for the from the competition of uh, social services of subsidies and people they most of the time uh, they see or they consider that these people that are coming they can maybe they may be competing with them and I think that the lack of resources just to try to attend the basic needs in housing, in uh, education, anything that affect these people may be a really a turning point when it comes to, to face this problem. And I think that providing more resources, more yeah, budget to try to face this problem and to give all the opportunity for the communities to try to work together in, from an uh, intercultural and uh, diverse perspective could be quite interesting to, 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 to solve the problem. It's not a matter that we can solve within one year or two years. I think it is a very long-term challenge that we have to work and try to get communities from different backgrounds, from different realities and cultural contexts to know each other, in, including and involving the young, the children at the level of the school, but just try to work knowing that we want that within 10 years or five years, we want to have a con community that knew each other, that try to share important thing. I think that this should be the yeah, yeah the way we should focus the, the, our intervention. So lo local aspects for migration policies are, are, are so important, but definitely we need a European strategy. So so Laura, how do you see these, these two dimensions 
uh, fitting together. I think in, in recent years, there has been this acknowledgement uh, of how important are cities and uh, other local communities to give a response to the most pressing migration challenges. They are the forefront, uh, so they, they are the most equipped in the sense that uh, they are closer to to their own citizens and to refugees and migrants themselves. I think they are going to be playing a key role in the uh, in the phases now that we're going to be entering for this uh, recovery after the the pandemic. And I I think the focus has also shifted somehow at the European level. There's more uh, there are more efforts to work and involve the local communities and authorities in the design of uh, these policies and responses uh, to the to the pandemic and also to to migration and integration policies. And we we see this uh, in different EU institutions, like the Committee of the Regions has, for instance, launched uh, an initiative on inclusion and integration at the local level, bringing together a large network of different uh, cities uh, and uh, city leaders to discuss these, these issues at hand. But as Abdullaya was uh, mentioning, there's always the problem of uh, resources and also the problem of um, competence, not only within the, the country itself. I mean, who retains the competence to apply certain policies? And we've seen, like, for for instance, some countries in the past who were not willing to, to have uh, to host any refugees coming from Syria and other countries, while some cities have been at the forefront of the calls to become more welcoming. And we've seen alliances of different cities around uh, Europe to call on their respective governments to let them uh, be more welcoming and, and host those refugees. So I think they're going to be playing a key a key role in the coming in the coming months because they are, uh, in a way, they are ensuring the social cohesion in their communities, and it's important that they work towards um, creating like a, an atmosphere between the, the locals and also the newcomers, but also addressing the major barriers that migrants and other marginalized groups face in their journeys towards full integration in those communities. And this is going to be key because they also need to be part of this uh, future response. So it will largely depend on how municipalities and other stakeholders are going to be uh, giving to, to this crisis and how they are going to be building this trust between the residents and, and the newcomers. I think I'm very agree with Laura, and uh, I think the, the role of the cities in, uh, in uh, integration policies is essential. Uh, I want to mention this uh, intercultural cities network that was launched by uh, Council of Europe uh, some years ago, and it's working very, very well on that on that uh, matters. And uh, it's following just what Laura was mentioned before on the on the EU level. Um, the thing is, uh, the main problem is that if, if, if essentially uh, competencies. I mean, uh, what are the competencies of, lo of local administration? What are the competencies of regional administration? Uh, what, what, is, uh, what uh, weight has their voice at the EU level uh, institutions? Um, so, yeah, the Council of Re the Regions, it's, it's fine. We've seen some initiatives coming from there, but I just need to have a more... Um, political and powerful institution to represent the voice of, of the local and regional administrations in, in, the, in the EU as well. Um, they are doing it by themselves, uh, but they don't have the, the, 
say, the, the institutional umbrella under which uh, they can act uh, in, that, in that sense. Um, also, I want to, 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 to remark some stuff that uh, we didn't focus already, but uh, uh, I think the uh, nation states also have, uh, and the EU, uh, EU United Nations, uh, the international, uh, European, and, and national level, they are realizing that uh, the best administrations that have uh, the, the capacity of deal with migrants in, in their societies as uh, neighbors are the local administrations. So they are, I think they are taking it much more into account since the refugee crisis in 2015, uh, the role of these cities as uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as, a, as an administration that can provide more social cohesion into the into the cities mainly, but also in general on the on the whole on the whole the field of the of the nation state. And um, and let me let me uh, just mention one thing that I forgot to tell in the, uh, before uh, is that when we have a look to the to the COVID nineteen and the effects on on the on the population, we've seen that it's not just that migra migrants that are more, they're much more affected, there's the uh, socioeconomic cleavage, which is uh, involved in this impact. So since migrants are the ones who are not, uh, who are in the, in the, in the most um, um, uh, stable uh, uh, situation, uh, and in the, in the lower socioeconomic in general, in, in the lower socioeconomic uh, scale, uh, are the ones who are much more affected and impacted by the COVID-19. Uh, I'm not including here, but, but of course, the irregular migrants, which are uh, another, another issue. Uh, but um, uh, in this case, the role of the cities, again, is, is getting much, much, more, much important because they are the ones who know what the needs for this population. Obviously, the, the, the attention of so many policymakers these days is about recovery. It's about exploring the new normal, but it's about putting our economies again uh, to function and, and so on. So I wanted to ask you if, you if you can think of ways in which migrants or migrant policies can play a role in this uh, recovery. I already referred to it um, briefly before. I think they have to be, uh, the priority is social cohesion. So first of all, we have to ensure that our societies are inclusive in order to, to also be able to bring their responses uh, on board. But something that we have been exploring as well at, at the Hello Europe is the potential of migrant entrepreneurship, uh, be it social entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship. But we have uh, a number of fellows working on how to enable and support those uh, entrepreneurs from, uh, from a migrant background, because their, their contribution will be crucial in order to recover faster from this uh, recession. I mean, there's a fact that is not very well known, which is that in most European countries, migrants are often more entrepreneurial than non-migrants. And the difference here it's that they they don't become entrepreneurs out of um, because of the, the opportunities that they have, but because they 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 become out of necessity because they don't have any other uh, opportunities. And now with the massive job losses and unemployment that we are gonna be facing, many people have lost their jobs, including uh, migrants and other vulnerable communities in there. So we will be seeing 
uh, a need for them to restart to establish their own businesses and and ventures. So they have been very successful in doing so in the past, uh, given their resilience because of all the personal experiences that they had to go through and the willingness to take risks because they they know this is the only way that they might have in order to to survive. The problem is that uh, most European countries don't have a proper country strategy for migrant entrepreneurship. So this is something that we want to unleash uh, their potential and, and, their talent, and their talent because we believe there is a next generation of migrant leaders out there who are ready to contribute to this economic uh, recovery. But as I said, there's a need for this uh, country strategy for migrant entrepreneurship. Um, and we, we, we are hoping that this will be uh, also taking into account in, in the next steps of, of the recovery. But it's important to, to support those and to create an ecosystem for them where they can they thrive and contribute to, to their host community. Okay, I think that the, the strategy we can implement justify in perspective of uh, how we can face this situation can be twofold. First of all, time is to see how we can manage or can we can settle a kind of intervention that will be focused on helping these people that are really affected by the pandemic to go ahead for daily life for for yeah yeah just for, to um, to maintain their families uh, go through this bad situation. That is one one issue. And the second one is how these people can be prepared to. Uh, yes, to reintegrate the labor market within one year or two years, because I think that the big problem migrants are meeting that I specifically rhyme in comparison to others collective is that they are less. Most of the time, they are less prepared. They are not well well trained, and they are let's say implementing uh, underqualified job in very precarious labors. And I think that it should be interesting for public institutions just to fight to invest in empowering, in training these people in prevision of what may happen during uh, the, the coming years. And I think that at this point, it is very important to take into account what Laura has just pointed out, how we can incorporate, how we can associate the migrant leaders, the migrant, uh, migrant entrepreneurs, just to try to design a policy that will be focused on empowering these migrant people. Because what I have noticed at the level of European and national policies in terms of trying to address the problem that affect the migrant, it is we are just most of the time focused on assistentialism, of helping on a daily basis. And this, let's say, dynamic that is based on creating continuous help that people, they say, no matter that I try to make effort because the state will help me, I think that we 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 it should be quite important to try to work on a design a new paradigm of saying that we won't invest on migrant and vulnerable colleagues just make them competitive in the labor market and i think that can be a mid-term or long-term perspective but i think this is the way we should try to focus this situation otherwise if within five years or ten years we have another crisis we'll be living in the same situation because those migrants will be the less prepared to resist the labor market and the effect of this crisis. Okay, I want to point out, put it on the table in referring what uh, the interventions of Laura and Abdullah. Uh, I think we, we we have to distinguish between uh, general measures uh, in, uh, taken by uh, uh, public policies and specific measures taken by pub, uh, public po uh, policies towards migrants, right? Um, when you're talking about uh, entrepreneurship by migrants, 
uh, it's fine, but it, it cannot be applied as, 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 a, as a general measure, including it, it into, the, into the public policies, because these kind of measures are in the long term, medium long term, and they, they might uh, affect the social cohesion and they, they might provoke some, um, how to say that, some uh, uh, distrust from the local and host society. So um, it should be done in, in, in a way in which uh, they pay attention to the social, socioeconomic cleavage and not to their condition as migrants, uh, if I'm, I'm clear on that. And um, so uh, I think uh, the, the opportunity for this, uh, uh, or the opportunity, the, op the window of opportunity open on this, uh, uh, this pandemic, uh, which, which is, is, is clearing, is that the need of having um, a more um, uh, dynamic public policy, migration public policies uh, towards migrant population. But it doesn't mean that we, they, they have to rule uh, on a general basis for just for migrant population. Um, it's, uh, I think we have to, to clear up that because uh, the risk of, uh, of, of, of untrust from health society is very high on this, on this matter. And it's been studied uh, uh, in other in other moments of the history, how these uh, these uh, measures, these this, this specific measures towards one collective, can be very very damaging for them. Looking ahead, let's consider now how migration policies should look like after this is over. Is there room for something else? apart from border control. Now, we, we know that the EU has been focusing on border control for a while, and, and we've been hearing about uh, a common migration policy for a while as well, but so far we've seen border control. So is there room for more? Should the pandemic or the post-pandemic trigger other, other policies? Laura, how do you, how do you see this, this dimension? Yes, connected to what we were saying earlier, I think there's a, a key one that, that needs to be a, a policy that needs to be transformed completely, which is uh, the labor markets and, and how they work. Uh, as our populations are aging and now that we've seen in our wealthy societies the importance of migrants for our economy and health systems, uh, this gives an opportunity to completely uh, transform the labor markets, uh, the way they work in order to attract immigrants of all skill levels. I mean, this has been, uh, it's been discussed in several member states and we've seen these uh, regularizations of uh, uh, work permits in some countries. This is a national competence, so the EU cannot come up with a massive uh, regularization proposal for the uh, EU as a whole, but still it's a good step in the right direction. Uh, and I think, I think it needs to be replicated in, in other countries. I, I think the, and this is something that one of our fellows uh, wrote in a, in a recent article, uh, we, we need to completely recalibrate the way the, the labor market, the mobility model works in order to respond to the demands of a modern labor market nowadays. I think there are alternative and, uh, and ambitious strategies out there that would help uh, take make the most of the skills that some of these migrants bring to our societies. But this needs, of course, uh, political will. Uh, it needs political will and, and courage from our politicians to um, 
to really bring these millions of undocumented uh, migrants back out of the, the shadows, uh, because this will only contribute to, to enhance our labor market and, uh, and have a positive impact in the economic recovery of our countries, while at the same time, it will reduce the attractiveness of uh, irregularity. So, but as I said, this, uh, it all comes down to, uh, to political will, which is something that has been lacking ever since uh, Europe was hit by the so-called migration, migration management crisis in 2015. So we will have to see how uh, the upcoming new pact on migration and asylum that is going to be has been delayed already for some months due to the impact of this pandemic, uh, what the European Commission is going to put forward, not only in the area of asylum and migration, but also there will be interesting uh, proposals coming up on, on labor migration. And there it would be important to, to see a change in the way these policies have been driven. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm agree with, with Laura, but we have to point out that there is no, no, there is no existence of a European labor market. That's the first thing. There is no fiscal union. And there is no political will from the member states. Uh, so there are our three premises uh, to put on the table and to try to analyze what uh, can happen in the in the near future. Um, uh, on the public policy side, um, we have to take into account that this is uh, related with the labor market is an exclusive competence of the of the of the member states, and um, and these public policies can be a speed up towards let's say. Uh, um, a convalidation of of high uh, of of education titles, for instance, it could be a good a way to 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 deal with uh, the COVID nineteen. Just uh, put on the table the need of uh, uh, professionals coming from the health services to the health services, um, doctors, nurses, etc. Um, and uh, the problem with that we have in our societies is not just Spain, but other countries, is that these uh, administrative procedures are very, going very, very slow. Uh, so this would be a, a way to speed up this, this uh, resolution of uh, administrative experience. Uh, on the other hand, we have uh, uh, these regularization processes that um, uh, Laura mentioned. We have to take into account that, again, all regularization processes uh, are these regularization are not extraordinary okay uh, the, 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 what happened in Portugal was not extraordinary it was a, a, a express regularization of uh, already handout uh, uh, administration files for migrants that were asked for uh, for uh, resident and, and your permits in the case of Italy it depends mainly on the on the contractor who has to pay 400 euros per uh, per uh, worker. If they if they want to to regularize them, it's 400 per worker plus all the uh, all the months that they have not been paid the social security for that worker. So I don't think it's gonna be a huge uh, advance on that. Uh, uh, I think we have to reinforce in our societies, uh, in every single country, um, procedures such as uh, working working inspections. Uh, as the one who our Ministry of, of, of Work, um, Yolanda Diaz, uh, approved uh, or uh, just said uh, two weeks ago on how to deal with infractors on the, in, for instance, uh, for, in, the, in, the, in the field work, um, to identify which ones are the ones who are uh, hiring people without uh, the legal papers on rule and they are not regularizing them. 
by the 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 uh, normal and not uh, ex express or um, uh, um, a specific uh, measure of regularization. So that would be one thing. Another thing could be um, if the European Union is capable now to go ahead from uh, the border control to other uh, to a more general migration policy. It is true that. Uh, since the beginning of the construction of the of the European migration policy, uh, the only fields in which this migration policy had, uh, had taken any advantage and homogenization between um, European member states are the ones linked to uh, border control, externalization, and militarization of the Mediterranean. In this case, um, the externalization of of, of uh, the, the migration policies from the EU. Uh, is having a deep, in, deep impact in our neighborhood uh, countries and in, uh, in the European neighborhood policy as well. Um, let's see what happened with Turkey, with the hat in their hands. Uh, the, all the migration pressure that can put on the borders, as uh, Carlos mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Um, there is a huge risk that the, let's say, central uh, political leaders, uh, meaning central in ideological terms, are buying the discourse of the extreme right and populist leaders in Europe, saying by uh, as Angela van der Leyen, uh, uh, van der Leyen said uh, at that point in, in the border with, in between Greece and, and Turkey, uh, Greece is a shelter for migrants. So uh, there is a huge risk that the Europe is not controlling anymore what our neighbors are doing with uh, with, uh, with the neighbors. Um, the, my, the, the border control policies developed by the European Union for the time being has not reduced the coming up of flows and migration flows in any kind of uh, voluntary and non-voluntary migration flows. And on the other hand, we are paying most attention to the ones coming through the Mediterranean, but we have to take into account that the majority of migrants are not coming through the Mediterranean, but are coming through the airports and uh, they enter into our countries uh, legally and uh, they are becoming irregulars because their visa had uh, expired. So that is the main point uh, we have to take a look. And, um, and I think uh, this crisis should open, because what I will say at the beginning, should open a, it's a window of opportunity to, um, to try to construct, to build up this narrative in which we all are conscious that um, this society is composed also by uh, migrants that is not a conjunctural situation, but a structural situation. Thank you, Ruth. I think you touched on, on, on something that is uh, interesting and is the, the kind of agreements that the EU has with, uh, with Turkey. And I'm wondering whether the, uh, the, the, the COVID-19 crisis may or may not change the perception that the EU, that the EU policymakers have on, on countries such as Turkey being uh, the, 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 right, the right partners to externalize uh, uh, migration, managing migration. Just to build up as well on what was previously said by Ruth, I think the European Union has built a very dangerous precedent here by outsourcing the management of migration to third countries. Um, uh, Turkey can be one case, but I think 
uh, it has been rather successful what Turkey has been doing in the country by hosting, I mean, the largest number of refugees around the world. But there are, of course, uh, some um, some aspects of it uh, that are still contentious and how the uh, transfer of refugees has been made. There are still a lot of uh, human rights uh, concerns in the way this deal has been implemented. But there are other cases like Libya, which are even uh, which are even worse. I'm afraid I'm not very confident that we will be seeing a shift anytime soon because there's no political will coming from the member states and uh, solidarity has been lacking. I mean, the number of uh, refugees that have been resettled into the European Union coming from Turkey, it's uh, such a small number compared to what the country, the number that the refugees that the country is hosting, that doesn't give me much hope uh, about the future negotiations of this deal. Uh, I mean, we, we could speak, we could have another podcast just to talk about the so-called EU-Turkey deal, but there are a lot of other uh, elements into that deal that uh, have uh, haven't made it very successful. But I think what we need to, and now what is being discussed in terms of uh, sharing the so-called burden of uh, these uh, refugees uh, is to try to to find more solidarity among member states. Maybe this this cannot have this cannot be imposed. We've seen how Hungary, Poland, and other uh, Eastern uh, countries have been uh, completely against uh, any quota system to to relocate or to resettle refugees. But I I there's a, now a discussion going on and how to find other ways to make them uh, be part of a, of a wider strategy on how to share this, uh, maybe from an economic perspective, if they don't want to share uh, the number of, of refugees. So there are intense talks at the moment, and this is what the two commissioners in charge have been doing for the past month, touring the different EU capitals to look for a new consensus on this. And this is going to be the key for the future of uh, other deals like that. But for the time being, I see that this is going to be replicated and copy-pasted with uh, other frontline countries in our neighborhood. Yes, I totally agree with Laura. I'm not very optimistic about this point. I was optimistic about the other one, but not this one. Uh, um, There is some news coming from Countries in the European countries coming in in the Mediterranean, uh, the for instance Malta and some parts of Malta, some parts of Italy have declared themselves as an unsafe port because of COVID-19. So there are some boats just going around the Mediterranean because they are having not not found uh, any safe port to disembark the migrants and in their in their ships. Um, so this is very worrying. Uh, since they, this is giving a, a total, a proper excuse to just refuse receiving these boats with with uh, migrants coming specifically from Libya. Um, if we take into account uh, what has been said about uh, the situation in in Libya and these uh, uh, boats going around the Mediterranean, the absence of the uh, states uh, on the management of this of this uh, crisis, um, we, I think we cannot be very very optimistic in this in this sense. On the other hand, uh, there is a huge uh, discussion, as Laura mentioned before, uh, on how to well, how to uh, going ahead with the with the reform of the SECA, uh, which is not being easy, as you know. This has been stopped for quite a while. And the COVID-19 is not helping that. Um, 
but I would like to to mention one one specific issue related with Visegrad countries. They are not the ones. I mean, they are uh, are not against migration. They also have uh, their own migrants coming from Eastern countries. Uh, so they are open to labor migration, which I, they don't want is uh, uh, Muslim refugees, which is the main point of of cleavage in in into the into this uh, into this, this into this discussion and this and this narrative. They are you know covered everything with the migration issue, but it's not real. Uh, um, it's not really a, a, a migration issue. It's a, a much more deeper um, concern, which is. Uh, related with discrimination and racism. Thank you, Ruth. I think we're we're coming to an end. But before we do that, Abdullah, would you like to have a final a final word? Yeah, to, to, to the point we we have been talking now. I I think to my understanding, the original scene of uh, the European migrant policy is that it is uh, it always to a very reactive, uh, let's say, approach. Uh, normally, we do not have a policy that try to implement and to have to envision the integration and the coming of migrants and uh, during a long period of time but everything is dependent of how many migrants are arriving if there is any migra migratory crisis how many people are arriving by the mediterranean by the eastern part of europe or what is the reaction of the political parties in europe just try to design something that is only valid for that moment but we do not have any long-term, any mid-term policy that we'll try to see. Okay, this is the way we want to address the migration uh, yes, question in Europe uh, and try to coordinate between the member states something that can be, let's say, long-term and much more effective. Most of the time, even the policies that we that are implemented with the sending countries in terms of make, making them participating in the yes in the policies and the program for migration are very dependent on the intensity of the flows many of the the, the yes the, um, the partnership that have been elaborated with many african countries with spain in europe in uh, and the european union have been established uh, as a consequence of the the, um, the arriving of many boats of migrants in 2006 and 2008. But afterwards, with the crisis, everything was let, set aside. And I think that we have to try to design something that we want to implement in terms of normality to say that this problem will be going on and we try to think something more, let's say, long term. I think that should be the question. But if we try to react uh, or try to implement something on a reactive basis, depending on what is happening, I think that would be complicated to address the question in an effective way. Thank you, Abdullah. Um, we're coming to an end. Um, we could, of course, talk more about this crucial subject, but uh, I want to thank our, our guests, uh, Laura Batalla, Abdullah Fall, and Ruth Ferrero-Turrion. Thank you, the three of you. Thank you. Thank you. We got great insights on one of the hottest EU political subjects that so dramatically affect millions of vulnerable human beings. And with or without COVID-19, but probably now more than ever, due to the gigantic social consequences of this crisis, the EU needs a migration answer worthy of its values and principles. I hope we gave renewed arguments for that. So this was all for now. Europe After Corona is a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debate and produced by Agenda Publica. We will continue this conversation very soon because yes, these lockdown days are slowly coming to an end and we need to be ready with answers on the post-corona world that is slowly emerging. Stay tuned.